This is Pangea. I'm your host, Jacqueline Schiff. Before we get into the interview, I wanted to ask you if you've heard about Upworthy, uh, which is a website, so upworthy.com. The reason I bring it up is I feel like I've been seeing a lot of them lately, links on Twitter and Facebook and um, other social sites. And then just this week, I, I found myself reading a Huffington Post article about Upworthy, which is apparently just six months old. And the founders say the site's goal is to find videos that highlight important topics such as racial profiling, bullying, and um, and other issues. And then what they do is they, they highlight it on Upworthy.com. They retitle the video into something that's a little more eye-catching and maybe a bit sensational. And essentially, it's another distribution channel uh, for the video. I haven't seen them highlight a lot of global issues, um, but it does seem like the type of place um, that would uh, feature those those types of things. A lot of the stuff have um, a bit of a progressive edge to them. Uh, So so very interesting and just wanted to, to raise it to say check it out if you haven't already seen it. Hopefully I can bring um, one of the founders on here to chat more about what they're up to and how it could help your work uh, potentially in the future. But for now, uh, back to the interview, um, because I know, I hope that's why you're listening. Um, And this week I'm talking to Tate Watkins. He's an independent journalist um, who finds interesting angles on foreign aid, technology and business stories in Haiti and we talk about you know some of the challenges he faces um, reporting from Haiti. He's been there since the beginning of the year. And uh, some of his upcoming pieces, which have yet to be published, one of which I found very interesting about innovation in internet infrastructure in Haiti. This is you know not the typical Haiti gloom and doom reporting. He, he tries to do something a little different. So I hope you will enjoy and uh, the interview is coming right up. Talking to Tate Watkins, uh, who's a freelance writer in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and he writes about economic development, foreign aid, immigration. You might have read his pieces in the Christian Science Monitor, um, and Wired magazine, and Reason, or no, was is it relevant or Reason? <laughs> it, it's Reason, Reason magazine. Reason magazine, um, and he also touts the benefits of eating lunch alone. Does that about, (laughs) I really, I like that piece, uh, Tate, and I wanted to talk to you about it, but does that kind of sum things up? It does, for sure, and as a definitely self-described introvert, definitely do tell the benefit of eating lunch. (laughs) Uh, I I hear that. I mean, honestly, I would not even identify as an introvert, but I think eating lunch alone is not a bad thing. Um, What what prompted that piece on your blog? (laughs) That was actually, I think that was prompted by a conversation with a coworker at the time where I was working in D.C., um, which I had gotten back from lunch, and she just thought it was really weird that I had, you know, gone and eaten lunch at, like, a Vietnamese restaurant or somewhere alone for an hour. And so I wound up sending her a great essay by a journalist, a guy named Jonathan Rausch, who has a great essay called uh, Caring for Your Introvert, which is probably the best... Uh, 
attempt that I've seen at an mm-hmm. introvert trying to explain uh, introversion to extroverts. Um, and so the rest of the post basically is about my attempt to do that using his essay and partial failure to do so. So oh, That's interesting. And, and there's also um, a, a TED Talk that I started watching at one point. I, I don't know if you've seen it, and I can't remember for the life of me who the speaker is, but just about being an introvert and how, um, you know, so many – um, the, the world tends to favor extroverts, but you know, really, we should we should pay attention to what our you know more quiet brothers and sisters are doing. I guess. Exactly, I would definitely recommend doing so, but I might <laughs> be a little biased. So. Um, well, well, let's talk more about you and uh, how you ended up in Haiti. Um, we we were chatting, you know, before. Um, this, mm-hmm. uh, we started the recording and, you know, you were in DC before doing some research on economic policy and, and now you're an independent correspondent in Haiti. How, how did you end up there and, and how did you, I guess, um, get bitten by the journalism bug? Right. Well, I guess, yeah, it goes back to, I was, uh, had been working in DC for a couple of years. Uh, I have, I studied economics in college and, had been working in D.C. Uh, for a couple of years doing kind of research on econ and public policy at a research center affiliated with, with George Mason University's economics department. It was work that I enjoyed a lot, but then also kind of got a little bit of exposure, I guess, just to kind of journalism and the D.C. world of journalism and writing a few op-eds and that kind of thing. Um, and had always enjoyed writing, but never really devoted myself to like the craft of writing and actually trying to become a better writer and potentially wade into that world of journalism. Um, but basically decided that's what I wanted to do and wound up uh, interning actually. Uh, so going to intern at a small politics and culture magazine called Reason Magazine, as you mentioned, in D.C. Um, last fall and then decided at that point and at that point in my career that I thought it would be worthwhile to, you know, go do some original reporting on the ground somewhere, um, it, as opposed to, say, maybe taking a desk job at that point in D.C. or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And had visited Haiti once before, about six months after the earthquake of January 2010. And it's a fascinating place in so many respects, uh, just culturally, historically. I already spoke decent, or maybe some people might say bad French, uh, thanks to having experience doing uh, the Peace Corps, actually, right after college in Senegal, in West Africa. Um, and so kind of all those things just led me to decide to come to Haiti and came here last January and kind of felt things out for a month or so and then decided to come and move here, you know, semi-permanently at least, and have been here since. And and what's it like there, uh, I guess, specifically in terms of, of reporting, Um you know, what, what's it like to be a reporter there? Do you find that there are a lot of other people that are pursuing similar stories? What are some of the challenges that you face? That's like three questions in one, but <laughs> yeah. take whichever one you want. <laughs> um, well, as far as challenges, there's definitely, I mean, you know, getting access, obviously. There's also, you know, just language barriers and, you know, learning Haitian Creole as well as I can, trying to, you know, practice and get better at doing that, but then just conducting interviews, all those sorts of things, getting access to different, you know, government agencies or quasi-government entities, that kind of thing can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like it can anywhere, but, you know, just being a, being obviously a foreigner, um, 
here makes it that much harder, but just like any journalist anywhere abroad has to deal with those things. Um, but then, sorry, what was one of the other two questions? <laughs> uh, well, no, and I, I guess, um, do you find you have a lot of counterparts in Haiti? Um, oh, right. Other yep. journalists, and, yeah. So, you know, I came, when I came, it was, you know, right around the two-year anniversary of the earthquake. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, you know, you kind of have your deluge of stories, the, you know, the first anniversary and the second anniversary of the quake that came out. Lots of, you know, major media outlets ran stories about Haiti. Um, but at the same time, you had a lot of journalists and a lot of Haiti workers even whose, you know, mandates or contracts or what have you were running out around that time and they were leaving Haiti. So for me, you know, I felt like it was a good opportunity because there weren't a ton of, you know, staff writers, you know, freelancers, let alone staff writers still here um, covering things. But at the same time, there was still this huge aid effort, you know, billion, billions and billions of dollars that had been pledged to help reconstruct you know, Haiti after the earthquake and still lots of stories to be told about all that. Um, so, and, you know, I know I have friends and acquaintances here who are journalists, either, you know, stringers or, uh, you know, work for regularly for a specific outlet or kind of freelance at various places. But, you know, I've only been here 10 months or so now. Mm -hmm. And I've also had, you know, friends come and go or, you know, mostly just go people who were here even before I got here and have since left. So. Yeah, so because uh, I guess as as we get further away from um, the the earthquake, uh, and this is something that came up almost immediately after, you know, people do tend to lose interest in the story. So um, it's it, you know it's well, important to have uh, someone there at least uh, checking on things. To me, that's always. I mean, there's always that tension, I guess. And so you know, one thing that I really like about doing what I'm doing and being a freelancer is not only. I mean, you know, that, you know, independent correspondent, quote unquote, as I kind of tongue in cheek call it on my website, but, but also like totally mean that because I really enjoy, you know, and appreciate being able to write about stories I think are interesting and important and should be told. But at the same time, there's that tension because you obviously have to sell editors on stories as a freelancer. And ultimately, you know, what they care about is are people actually going to want to read this? Is this, how does this, you know, relate to them maybe as an American audience, in my case, or at least, you know, what's interesting about it or maybe has a wider appeal um, to where somebody's going to want to take that story. Right, exactly. And do you find that um, editors still have an interest in Haiti um, about the earthquake or, you know, is more of the interest maybe beyond that? Where, where does the interest lie if it lies anywhere? Yeah, I think at this point, it's it's definitely beyond and in the sense of, okay, what is happening with all this, you know, U.S. taxpayer money that is still coming down here, um, you know, just last week or just Monday, I guess, uh, both Bill and Hillary Clinton were here along with a slew of uh, kind of American celebrities to inaugurate uh, an industrial park in the north of Haiti that's kind of the single biggest investment since the earthquake. Right which the U.S. government and the American Development Bank and a few other entities have pumped a lot of money into. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's definitely kind of the draw for maybe editors and American audiences still now. But, and, you know, another thing to me is just not, you know, I don't really have an interest in, in I mean, another so another tension, I guess, of being here is, you know, I don't really have an interest in selling, like, the oh, poverty, misery of Haiti stories, and there have definitely been enough stories like that. And 
in my opinion, you know, I try to veer toward other stuff, I guess, like I said, is interesting to me and important at the same time, but maybe um, intriguing, or I don't want to say, like, surprising just for the sake of it. But, you know, I, to me, you know, I've come to Haiti and been here a little while, and there's still so many things where I'm like, oh, wow, that's just fascinating or interesting, or, oh, I wouldn't expect to come across that or things to work like that in Haiti. Um, so, you know, I kind of look for stories like that where people maybe would, you know, see a different side, I guess, of a, a Haiti story that they might not see every day. So. Sure, and I, I can appreciate that because I think also in in my writing, I, I tend to, you know, the, there tends to be a narrative that emerges from a certain place or event, and, you know, I'm always kind of searching, and it's, it's not easy, but searching for the story that's a little bit beyond or on the periphery of that. Talking about things that are that have surprised you, um, what's one example of something? And it doesn't even necessarily have to be that, that you're writing about it, but um, but something that you have found surprising since you've been there. Um, well, one example, I guess that that I had kind of mentioned to you is something I did just have a piece coming out soon, fairly soon about, which is just kind of a about the internet sector or industry here, uh, however you want to call it. But um, basically, just kind of, you know, I've interviewed a few um, of the main ISPs here and done some other research and interviews just to kind of uh, get a handle as best I, I can and tell a story about the Internet infrastructure here and all the innovation and investment that to me is really, really fascinating that's going on here. Um, uh, <clears throat> who's, who's, um, who's investing um, in the Internet infrastructure there? So there are three main ISPs here, um, all of which, so, you know, the other thing is essentially, you know, all the vast majority of internet connections that you're going to have in like a residence or even a business here, you know, the internet connection that we're able to Skype on right now is a wireless connection Mm -hmm. that essentially doesn't require, and you know, it's essentially a wireless cable modem that then you have a router, you can transmit a signal throughout your house. Um, and it's all essentially nowadays 4G internet, which has been rolled out in Haiti relatively really quickly, which is something that's also interesting to me because it's taken so long for like AT&T and Verizon and other providers in the States to get 4G networks up and going, you know, yeah. after the technology was available, just you know, thanks to, you know, regulations, different, you know, trying to figure out how to use the wireless spectrum in our country, that kind of thing. Whereas in Haiti, you obviously have the wired infrastructure that you do in countries like the United States. So it's a necessity of innovation and kind of pushing the envelope in that respect, um, which is just really interesting to me. And do you, uh, in addition to the three ISP I was talking about, you have Digicel, which is a company owned by an, uh, an Irish company that's uh, all in a lot of Caribbean countries. They started in Jamaica, but it's by far, Biggest self cell uh, company in Haiti right now, um, and they actually just in August I want to say connected a new fiber optic undersea cable mm-hmm. to link Haiti, uh, which Haiti was you know linked with connections to I want to say two cable connections before, but uh, you know, that was like a 16 million dollar project that they're obviously not doing. Um, I mean you know they're obviously doing it to serve their market and all. But it's going to, you know, have a lot, you know, eventually will definitely drive down costs and eventually price and increase access for 
you know, hopefully eventually down the line, average students who don't have access to the internet now or can't, you know, dream of being able to afford that maybe, but one day will. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's really interesting. And I'll also mention, I mean, in researching for our interview, uh, you, you did a piece, I think, for um, for Wired um, about uh, I- internet cafes in Haiti, which which I thought was fascinating. Um, so I'm guessing that's a bit of a precursor to the internet uh, infrastructure story that you're working on at the moment. Exactly. Just more, yeah, just kind of dipping into that, and this is more of kind of a zoom out. Okay, let's look at the whole sector and investments and all kind of thing. But, yeah, one thing that struck me just in doing that story um, is, you know, I mean, it, it should struck me, I guess, but, you know, it's just that people, would, we would look at it and say, well, that person can afford to go to an internet cafe and pay the equivalent of, like, 50 cents to get online for an hour. But they're, you know, going online and everyone is on Facebook and you walk into any internet cafe and, like, 90% of the screens are going to be pointed to Facebook, just like it would be, you know, if you walked into some, like, classes on college campuses in the U.S. And, you know, at the end of the day, people just want to be able to connect to friends and family um, and all the things that people do on Facebook and the broader internet that we do and people do everywhere. Yeah, that was another um, detail that I was, you know, re- really fascinated by is, uh, you know, that everyone's just increasingly on Facebook. Uh, l- let me also ask you about another story that you mentioned you're working on, um, and this is related to to the earthquake um, and, and sort of the technology used in earthquake response. Tell me a little more about that. Yeah, that's kind of that's a story I'm working on. It's kind of a retrospective piece, I guess, about technologies that were used uh, crowdsourcing that was used in the wake of the disaster for emergency response. Um, and one interesting thing about that is most of that whole emergency response system was mostly uh, on a short, like short phone number, you could text 4636, that people would text with emergency needs or say, I'm on, you know, at Delmar 31, a street in a neighborhood in Port-au-Prince, you know, beside a certain church, and there's a building collapsed and three people are there trapped. Mm-hmm. And so you essentially have people who could then text the, those sorts of messages in Haitian Creole, you know, mostly French, some maybe, maybe some English even. Um, and you had volunteer responders in the States who were then essentially built, originally built, you know, some simple software applications or web applications to kind of parse through all the stuff that was coming in. Uh, but then had Haitian, you know, most Haitians in the diaspora in the U.S. who had volunteered to translate those messages, who could help locate them in many cases because lots of them had either lived in Port-au-Prince or other places in Haiti um, where these texts were coming from, had either lived there at one time or were familiar with the area. Um, and then you had essentially that information going to this whole kind of digital assembly line, eventually getting to back to urgency emergency responders on the ground here, um, like the U.S. Coast Guard, for instance, and lots and lots of other people and doctors who were here helping the days after the earthquake, and people who then could actually act on that information and help uh, people in need. So it was just kind of a... So, so one of the things that stuck out to me, though, you know, I talked about the Internet sector here, but at the same time, only about 10% or just under 10% now of Haitians really have access to the Internet. Mm. But... So have around probably now it's around four and a half million mobile phone subscriptions. 
So in a country of 10 million people, so that's a lot of people who, you know, have a phone or have access to a phone or a family member or a friend. And so this, you know, whole system was set up in such a way that, you know, the vast majority of people would be able to respond uh, and get help eventually based on, I guess you could say, appropriate technology. Um, yeah, no, it sounds like there are, well, I, I guess it should rather be a question. Are there, um, in the use of this technology, are there lessons to be learned so that if there's another earthquake, um, you know, this technology could be harnessed more effectively to save more lives, hopefully? Uh, I would say absolutely, just based on the research I did for that piece. Uh, and that was kind of one of the one of the interesting things about that whole response effort was it was really probably the first time that at least to that degree kind of digital technologies, open source technologies, and crowdsourcing had been used in a, in a response like that. And since then, there there have been efforts to kind of formalize some of that process. Mm-hmm. The network, and so I kind of talk about that in the article. There's a network called the Standby Task Force, I believe that's the correct name, that has, you know, it's basically a network of volunteers that are kind of trained and familiar with themselves with all these processes and different programs and things and can kind of quote-unquote deploy, even though they're probably just sitting behind a computer, you know, in the States or another country, uh, but can deploy, you know, after certain crises to kind of do the same sorts of thing, help with crisis mapping um, and just kind of getting information out to people who can actually help people on the ground. And they've actually already, like I said, deployed um, with a handful of different, both emergencies. So they kind of did a monitoring program with the the Sudan referendum that led to South Sudan's independence, kind of um, just monitoring like election sites and everything through from the ground. Oh, wow. So all that, yeah, I, did, I didn't realize it was um, a crossover from, you know, le- lessons learned from the Haiti earthquake uh, in, you know, Sudanese elections. Yeah. That, that's quite interesting. Uh, we've been having – Skype has not been cooperating so well, and there's a bit of a delay in your talking, but hopefully it will improve soon. Um, I guess uh, I guess we should count ourselves lucky because uh, – as we speak, the the hurricane is has it passed over Haiti or it's passing through? Yes, it was it was started out as tropical storm Sandy, I guess it turned into a hurricane and kind of head on hit Jamaica uh, last day or so. Luckily, it went kind of by Haiti, but we've been kind of getting the I guess tail of it or part of it kind of dumping rain on us for the past couple of days. Right, but uh, but 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 nothing too major, which is which is good. Um, I wanted to also ask you about uh, foreign aid. Um, we sort of got to this a little early in the conversation, but you've written a, a lot about um, U.S. foreign aid to Haiti, and um, I was taking a look at one of your pieces from Good Magazine earlier this year, and one of the findings you highlight in there is that USAID has awarded only um, 0.02% of contracts. Uh, this is from fiscal years 2010 and 2011 to local Haitian firms. And generally, the piece was, um, I, I, I describe it as somewhat critical of the foreign aid approach to Haiti. Is anything working 
Definitely. I mean, there definitely are examples of, you know, projects and organizations and programs that are working and actually, you know, getting to help patients on the ground. But I'd say for, you know, most patients' perspectives probably, and even a lot of the organizations working on the response, it's not enough. Um, and even so, that article in particular, um, you know, one, the point that I made about, you know, not a ton of money being spent in Haiti, a lot of it being spent on contractors in, you know, the Beltway, say, mm-hmm. who definitely have expertise and, you know, technical capacity to do, uh, you know, a lot of the work they do. But at the same time, the, you know, a lot of what that story was about is stuff that USAID and, you know, others in the State Department and Obama administration have been talking about and made a concerted effort to do, which is spend, um, I think it's 30% of aid locally, globally, based on a global average, by 2015. And so with USAID forward, that program, and we definitely have constraints, capacity constraints. In a place like Haiti, you're not going to be able to, you know, procure everything you need, for instance, to rebuild after such a devastating earthquake all within the country. At the same time, we had... AP reports coming out six months and a year after the quake about, you know, construction firms here, for instance, that maybe a lot of Americans wouldn't, you know, be aware that such capacity exists here, but does. And so firms that have no way even where to begin to kind of uh, potentially help out and, you know, provide supplies and kind of thing for, for that effort. Um, but just as far as what works, I mean, to me, and just kind of, Honestly, a lot of my experience is colored by, colored by my Peace Corps experience um, in Senegal, like I mentioned earlier, which just seeing, I guess, firsthand how, you know, it's cliche, but good intentions are not enough, just mm-hmm. coming money to help, quote unquote, in some way, is definitely not enough. You've got to have, um, you know, money that I see in Haiti, I guess, and that I've written about elsewhere, too, is just kind of cultural, how difficult it really is. I guess, I kind of have a perspective too after coming here and, you know, doing what I've been doing and, and just trying, feeling like such an outsider, you know, most of the time still and just realizing after you get somewhere and figure out, you know, a little bit at least how things kind of work, maybe politically, culturally, economically, you realize how much you don't know at all. And here I am, you know, trying, having to research pieces and distill information for an audience that obviously, you know, knows spending a lot less of their time reading about Haiti and studying Haiti. Um, so, you know, you can imagine you have, you know, just kind of a lot of nature of, you know, aid contracts and that kind of thing are short-term. You have people who, you know, for better or worse, are kind of aid professionals who mm-hmm. maybe are going lots of places around the world as opposed to maybe being like country experts um, about certain places. And so it's very difficult to just kind of drop off in a place like Haiti um, and just be expected to, okay, make things work. Let's start these different projects and program and figure things out. Um, and so, the, again, you know, in, in my experience, I think organizations that rely, you know, on, on you know, Haitian staffs being led and run by Haitians or at least, you know, having lots of input from the ground and from people who understand local context and have that local knowledge mm-hmm. are, are going to be able to do a lot more good than um, organizations that don't. 
And I guess similarly, I think organizations that, and this you know would probably be true of any sort of of many businesses or organizations, whatever you're doing, if you if you you know do one thing or a handful of things and concentrate on doing them well and specializing, then you're probably going to be a lot more successful than if you kind of say, okay, there's been an awful earthquake in Haiti, let's go you know help or help Haiti recover or develop you know obviously figure out what that means in your context and kind of um, mission so. Right, and and I guess just moving away from that whole uh, republic of NGOs, that is uh, how a lot of people have characterized Haiti in the past. And from what I understand, I guess is is still really true of what's going on on the ground. It is in many respects, but again, that's kind of you know all the more reason I would say to try to take advantage of maybe in some cases what little capacity there is here, what capacity is already here in the sense of you know, local firms and local organizations um, and just trying to work maybe from the inside out at least and build up what's here as opposed to kind of trying to come in and implement something from the outside in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious if there is um, a Haitian um, person that you've either, either connected with uh, for a story or, or even outside of your reporting um, who's who's made an impression of you uh, on you since you've been there? Uh, oh man. <laughs> so many examples. It's hard to think of just one. Uh, I think there, there is one good example that, and actually we were talking before we started that I've done some podcasting myself. One of which was a, a short lived show I did with a friend who was a journalist here for a lot longer than me. He was here for about a year and a half or two years after the earthquake. Um, but we just decided to do a podcast kind of fun and again, just to kind of tell stories we wanted to tell. We didn't have to sell to an editor, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But we did with the friends of ours who were friends with my buddy Jacob, Jacob Kushner, um, for I Got Here. And they kind of, we, we kind of just asked them about, we were essentially just talking about kind of perceptions of Haiti and kind of their opinion of what they think or what they see are perceptions, you know, Americans' perceptions of Haiti and that kind of thing. And just, you know, they were, they're, uh, you know, young or early mid twenties, uh, recent graduated students and just kind of seeing their like passion and energy and just wanting this part of and, you know, that just, just uh, frustration with kind of, in their eyes, the lack of like positive images of Haiti abroad or just kind of the one-sided, you know, earthquake, destruction, tent camps, cholera stories that for better or worse are often often what the news is or what makes news in big outlets abroad. So if you try to add a link to that episode on there. Yeah, no, I, I definitely will. I can um, link it on um, on the website. So if people are listening from iTunes, just go over to watchpangea.com and um, and I will link it um, uh, below the podcast. Um, it, it's interesting to hear that because um, I think that there's, you know, something about the human condition that you know, doesn't want to be painted in a one-dimensional light. I think you talk to people sometimes from uh, areas where there's conflict and it's getting a lot of media attention, and that often seems to be the sentiment that people don't just want outsiders to think that, you know, this is all there is about where they are from. 
I feel like that's kind of a universal sentiment for whatever that's worth. Exactly. I mean, I get known to get kind of touchy when people start talking about the South because I grew up in the South. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I think we could spend we could probably spend hours on that topic. Um, sure. Well, Tate, I've I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm tr- you know I think we covered a lot of um, of what I wanted to cover. Is there anything that we didn't get to in the conversation, or I guess just any um, impressions of your time in Haiti so far that you'd want to communicate to to listeners? Um, I mean, I guess. That's a good question. Uh, well, let me let me try to narrow it even further. So. You know, you talked about people who, you know, aid professionals who come there and and people who are working there. What what is maybe an assumption that that group makes um, that perhaps they they shouldn't? I don't know if there's any sort of way you could generalize with that, but but if there is, I think that might be an interesting takeaway. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it would be tough for me to answer that, I guess, without making potentially yeah, just a generalization or assumption. <laughs> But, right. I'm, I'm yeah. putting you in an unfair spot, but it makes for an interesting interview. Right, right. Um, no, I mean, I will say, I guess I could say, uh, you know, as opposed to seeing maybe if you're, you know, let's say you're coming to a worker to Haiti and saying, okay, this is kind of, this is the job and this job description says this is what I'm going to be doing. Think of it more as, you know, I'm specifically coming to Haiti and just, you know, learn some Creole, Haitian Creole, take the time to do that, take the time to, you know, try to as best you can read about, you know, Haitian history and culture and all that cultural context and things we were talking about earlier, which is so integral, I would say, to just kind of any sort of, you know, work like that. Um, and, and at the same time, I think it's just, from what I see, it's not emphasized nearly as much as it could be. Um, and in a way, do a lot of good, probably, just who are coming down here to try to, again, kind of, you know, have a manageable chunk and specialize in doing uh, aid work in Haiti. Thank you so much, Tate. And um, I will, you know, we will, on the website, definitely link your um Twitter uh, name and your website and everything and people can connect with you there or in the comments and yeah so thank you so much for your time that sounds good thanks again I really enjoyed it